Greetings, brethren. It's a privilege to be here, I think. <laughs> I was talking with Dr. Meredith and Mr. Crockett before church, and they were kind of gently poking, and I said, even on the Sabbath, I can't get away. <laughs> I can't find any relief. Uh, <clears throat> you know, I'm, I'm learning how to answer my critics, though, that they say, you're never here, you're never here. But you know, there is a scripture in, in Mark 16 that says, we're to go into all the world. <laughs> and preach the gospel. And in Matthew 10, it says, we're to go to the lost sheep of the house of Israel, and they're scattered all over. So I'm just doing what I've been told to do. <laughs> now, it is a privilege to be here. My wife and I were in Atlanta last Sabbath, and driving back on Monday, I think we got into the heaviest rain that uh, we've encountered in quite some time, coming through uh, <clears throat> Greenville and through um, Anderson, and the water was just coming down, had the windshield wipers on as fast as they would go, and you could still barely see out the window. So it was, uh, <clears throat> it was nice to get back into Charlotte. Brethren, I had a very interesting phone call recently from an individual I've known for some 40 years. And we were discussing what's happening in the world today major social changes, the financial crises, a number of things going on around the world. And he made a very interesting comment. He said, something unique is happening in America and the world today. Something unique is happening in America and in the world today. You know, we have a president that wants to redefine marriage, that it can be between any two individuals. And the president of our nation is promoting that. And he's also basically on record as saying that he wants to promote lifestyles that for literally centuries have been regarded as perversions. He wants them accepted as normal today. Now, this, this is a sobering period of time in which we're living. You can look at the coins in your pocket and they will say, in God we trust. And yet in recent studies, it shows that more and more people are saying they have no religion at all. And more and more people are saying they don't believe in God. Things are changing in the world today. You know, we sang songs at the beginning of services today, praising God. We ask a blessing on the service in Jesus Christ's name. And yet, as I mentioned, many people don't believe in God today. We give sermons focusing on the laws of God, the plan of God, and the teachings of Jesus Christ. And yet there are more and more people saying that they don't believe in God. They don't believe in Jesus Christ. Some people even said, you know, Jesus may not have even existed, which is... It's incredible what is happening in the world today. An individual that I had worked with in times past has come to the conclusion that Jesus Christ is not even divine. He's just an ordinary human being. These are the ideas floating through our society today. As one person who wrote a book uh, about God, he said, Jesus is just an ordinary man, and if he's not divine, then Christianity is false. 
These are the ideas floating through our society today. And these are not just academic issues. You might say, well, I don't believe that, so it's really not that important. What we are seeing, what we are listening to, what we are watching is an attack on the very foundation of the Western Judeo-Christian civilization that we are living in. These are not little things. You know, in the psychology of propaganda, the approach is if you keep saying something long enough, people begin to believe it. People begin to believe it. These ideas have been floating around really for the last couple of hundred years. The rationalists in Germany, people in Holland, people in England, were speculating about that, well, Jesus Christ maybe never lived. God doesn't really exist. The Bible's probably not true. But we are living in a period of time today where these things are quite uh, <clears throat> well dispersed by the media throughout our society. There was a study done recently in England said 66% of teenagers in England don't believe God exists. Why don't they believe? Because this is what they're hearing in school. This is what they're hearing in school. I was on the Internet the other day, and it said the university, one of the universities in Michigan is teaching a course in how to be gay. How to be gay, a university course. I think it was entitled How to Be Gay 101. This is how you start. This is the way you go. This is the world in which we're living today, where more and more people are not religious, don't believe in God. Now, we happen to be living in the Bible Belt here, where many people do believe in Jesus. They do believe in God. But across the board, more and more people are shifting in a very different direction. You know, it's no wonder that people are confused today. I remember hearing a news broadcast a number of years ago where this reporter kind of stuck a microphone in the face of this girl and says, do you believe in God? She says, I'm God. God's in me. I'm God. But that's not what the book says. That's not what we have believed for centuries. I guess my question I want to ask you are several questions to get you to think as we begin the sermon today is will you be caught up in this secular, atheistic, agnostic undertow. How many of you have ever been swimming at the ocean and you got caught in an undertow and you couldn't get out of it or you found it very difficult? I remember when I was probably 12 or 13, we were vacationing in New Jersey with my mom and dad, and I got out where I could dig my toes into the, the water or into the sand at the bottom but there was an undertow. And I could just barely dig my toes in and keep my nose above the water. And I would try and swim, and then I'd run out of gas or run out of air, and I'd drop down. I could touch with my toes. And I noticed this guy next to me was watching me because he was six foot, and I was only about three feet or four feet at that time. And he looked over and said, he said, Sonny, are you in trouble? And I said, no. He watched me a little bit more and reached over and grabbed my arm <laughs> and pulled me in toward the shore because I was being sucked out. And there wasn't much I could do about it. You know, many people are sucked into these ideas today. They hear things, hear other people say things. They hear college teachers saying these things. They even hear theologians. I saw a book on, advertised on the Internet recently. It said, Losing Faith in Faith. 
by an evangelical minister who left his church and became an atheist. And when you see things like that happening today, you wonder, why would a person do that? He was a minister and he left, became an atheist. Will you or could you be caught in this secular, atheistic, agnostic undertow and be swept out to sea, if we use that phraseology? Could your children, could your children be caught up in these things? and be swept away. Think about it. Are you prepared to defend your beliefs, what you believe? Can you, in the face of some of this stuff that's being written today and published? What's interesting is that there were people back in the 1700s and 1800s speculating that Christ didn't exist and the Bible isn't true. So these ideas have been around really for centuries but they're becoming much more prominent today. Are you prepared to defend your beliefs? Are you prepared to assist Jesus Christ in turning the world right side up? You know, when Christ returns, our job is going to be working with him to say, this is the way. This is the way. Not over here. But this is the way. Walk you in it. Are you preparing to help Jesus Christ restore all things? Which means a knowledge of the scriptures, a knowledge of God, a knowledge of Jesus Christ, and help them get through this minefield that has been set basically by Satan the devil. In a sermon today, I want to talk about an individual who's been called the man that nobody knows. There's a book written years ago by a man by the name of Bruce Barton. He was talking about Jesus Christ. He said, most people don't know the Jesus Christ of the Bible. I want to talk about the real Jesus today. Did he exist? How do you know? Do you know? Can you prove that? Yeah, I've heard people say, if the Bible says it, I believe it. I don't want to worry about anything else. Well, there are a lot of people who say the Bible's not true. And if you believe it, you're believing lies. How do you deal with challenges like that? Did Jesus Christ exist? Who was he? Was he just an ordinary human being, as some people are saying today? Or was he something else? What did he teach? And how does this all affect you? I've entitled the sermon today, Jesus Christ, the Man and His Message. The man and his message. You might ask, why talk about this? We all know that Jesus Christ existed. We all know that he's the Son of God. Well, a lot of people today are saying that he's not. And this is not just an academic issue, and I want to underline that point. We are talking about criticism today in the media, uh, on television, on the Internet, uh, on books being published, that Jesus never existed. He wasn't the Son of God. He wasn't the Savior of mankind. You think he's coming back? You're deluded. These are the ideas floating around today. But what we're talking about is fundamental teachings. The foundation of Western Christian civilization is being attacked, and in many cases it's crumbling, and people are going down with it. Just how significant is this subject? I've written a number of things in my Bible, and I put this in between 
Malachi and Matthew at the very beginning of the New Testament. A quote that comes from Hastings Bible Dictionary. It says, The influence of Jesus Christ ranks with Greek culture and Roman law as one of the three most significant elements in the heritage of Western civilization. The influence of Jesus Christ, his teachings, is one of the most three one of the three most significant elements in Western civilization. It's just that important. Another source, Jesus Through the Centuries, a book. It says, regardless of what anyone may personally think or believe about him, Jesus of Nazareth has been the dominant figure in history or in the history of Western culture for almost 20 centuries. Jesus Christ, the most dominant figure. And when you start knocking and making fun of, we're dealing with the foundation of Western culture the foundation of the Western world. Another source, a short history of Christian thought. Jesus Christ, the inspiration for the most influential religion in history. There is no question that Christianity over the course of time has had far more adherence than any other religion. Another source, a short history of Christian thought. Well, that's another the previous quote came from a book entitled The 100, The 100 Most Influential People in History, and talking about Jesus Christ being one of them. And then from the short history of Christian thought, Christianity has been the foundation and driving force of Western culture. And yet people are knocking Jesus Christ, knocking his teachings, knocking the Bible, the very source of these teachings. You know, these books that are being published today and the ideas being promulgated about Jesus Christ are not only diabolical, they are attacking the very foundation of the civilization that we are living in. And I wonder if, if many people really perceive that. In terms of views of Jesus Christ, I think it helps to understand how the Bible looks at Jesus Christ and how other religions look at Jesus Christ. Because you know, some people are saying, we just need to get all the religions together and then we'll have peace. And others are saying, we need to get rid of all religions. And then there might be peace because religion is the source of all the problems. But in the Christian religion, Jesus is looked at as the Son of God, as God in the flesh, as a divine being or personage, as the Messiah foretold in the Old Testament Scriptures, born of a virgin, crucified and resurrected, the founder of the Christian religion, the savior of mankind, who's going to return and judge and rule the world. That's pretty powerful stuff. It's interesting, many Orthodox Jews view the man that we view as Jesus Christ as an imposter. He wasn't the Messiah. He's an imposter. And they reject most of everything else that I just read to you. Muslims view Jesus Christ as a prophet like Abraham and like Moses, but he's not divine. He's not the son of God. That he didn't die and that he wasn't resurrected, but he did ascend into heaven. 
That's a very different view. Atheists view Jesus Christ as a man, but not divine, probably misguided because he thought he was the son of God. Now, this is their view. So there are a number of different views of Jesus Christ, and I think it helps to understand where different people are coming from, where different religions are coming from. Did Jesus Christ exist? I remember whenever I first made contact or came in contact with the Church of God, my brother had been attending for some time. He arranged for a minister to come out and visit uh, with my mom and dad and myself. And my dad had read some philosophy books, and he asked this younger minister, he says, uh, I'm not aware that there's any evidence outside the Bible that Jesus Christ ever even lived. Is there any evidence? And the younger minister didn't know. He said, well, I, I'm not sure about that. So I spent, uh, I think, several weeks trying to find an answer. And if you look, there are answers. There are answers. If you would plug in on your computer the historicity of Jesus. In other words, historicity is the historical evidence for Jesus Christ. And you'll find a number of entrances, a number of, uh, of uh, bits of information. Josephus, a Jew who had connections with the Romans, wrote in his book, The Antiquities of the Jews, about 93 A.D. There are actually several references to Jesus Christ. Uh, one of the longer ones is that he was a man, uh, a special person who was uh, crucified, who appeared three days later, and he started a religion. Now, some people criticize uh, that reference, and they say it's, it may be interpolated, may have been added to later. But Josephus also says that Jesus Christ, or James, was the brother of Jesus Christ, and there seems to be no discussion about the uh, authenticity or questions about the authenticity of that particular statement. So you have a historical reference in 93 AD to Jesus Christ as an individual who was crucified, who was resurrected. Uh, that's historical evidence that points directly towards Jesus Christ. One of the better ones, I think, is in Tacitus. And if you go to many, it's a number of Bible dictionaries, just look up Jesus, look up evidence, and you will come up with these references. Tacitus was a Roman historian. He was also a Roman uh, uh, administrator involved with the government, came from a wealthy family, was educated. He writes in his book Annals, A-N-N-A-L-S, book 15, section 44. He says, Nero, now Nero lived about 68 A.D., fastened guilt for the fire of Rome, which occurred about 64 A.D., on a hated class called Christians by the populace. He says, it's their fault. And then Tacitus says, Christus, C-H-R-I-S-T-U-S, from whom the name Christians had its origin, suffered the extreme penalty. He was killed during the reign of Tiberius. Tiberius reigned 14 to about 37 A.D., he suffered the extreme penalty during the reign of Tiberius at the hands of one of our procurators, Pontius Pilatus, and a most mischievous superstition, thus checked for the moment, again broke out not only in Judea, 
but eventually in Rome. And that superstition was probably that he was resurrected from the dead. But here you have Tacitus writing about 109 A.D. that a man named Christus, from whom Christians came from and got their name, was killed during the reign of Tiberius between 14 and 37 A.D., which is exactly when the Bible says Christ uh, lived and died. So you have a historical reference indicating he did exist. And a person existed that fulfills the description found in the Bible. Very quickly, a couple of other ones. Pliny the Younger, who was also a Roman, who wrote about uh, early first century, second century actually, as a provincial governor, wrote a letter to the emperor Trajan around 112. He said, how do you deal with these Christians? They're creating problems. So they existed, and they were big enough to create problems. Another individual by the name of Lucian, he was a second century writer as a Roman and a Syrian. He says, Christians worship a distinguished person or man who was crucified. He taught about immortality and that we were all brothers. And they didn't like uh, the gods of the Greeks. So here you've got four historical references to Jesus Christ that fits with the biblical description and yet there are people saying, you know, he probably never lived. They're simply unaware of the evidence that is there. The point I want to make is that in spite of what these writers say today, that well, Jesus maybe never existed, there's no evidence, the evidence is there. And it's pretty clear who these writers were talking about. And they were writing within a century of the time in which he lived. So the writers today that are very critical, put these your beliefs down about Jesus Christ, really don't understand what they're talking about. I think it's in Second Peter chapter 2. Let's notice it quickly. <clears throat> Peter is talking about destructive doctrines and teachers that do these things. <clears throat> Just look at one verse. You can read the whole chapter. But it says, These, talking about these false teachers, like natural brute beasts made to be caught and destroyed, speak evil of things they do not understand and will utterly perish in their own corruption. You know, if you read through some of these critical books about the Bible and about God, and they kind of they come across, well, you know, the, the Gospels don't agree with each other and they contradict each other, and then you look at what they're talking about, it's obvious they don't understand the scriptures. They're pulling this out and pulling that out, and because they don't understand it, they view it as a contradiction. But the evidence exists, Jesus did exist, and the descriptions about him found in classical literature do agree with what we find in the Bible. The next question is, who does the Bible say Jesus was? Because people today are saying, well, he was just an ordinary human being. But that's not what the scriptures say. Let's start in Matthew chapter 1 and just notice several things. Now, Matthew is writing to a primarily Jewish audience, so he doesn't use the term son of God. This would have been offensive to the, the Jews. But in Matthew chapter 1, verse 1, it says, The book of the genealogy of Jesus Christ, the son of David, the son of Abraham. Now, what Matthew is going to do through the next several chapters is to show that Jesus Christ fulfilled the prophecies. 
in the Old Testament about a coming Messiah. He wasn't just anybody. What's interesting is the, uh, <clears throat> the Koran does not have prophecies in it about the coming of Muhammad, written six or 700 years before the coming of Muhammad. But the Bible does. The Bible has numerous prophecies, I think about 300 or so. Prophecies written in the Old Testament predicting various aspects of Jesus Christ by name, place of birth, what he was going to do, what his mission would be. There's no other book on the face of the earth that describes a personage like that. So Matthew is saying here to a Jewish audience, the book of the genealogy of Jesus Christ, the son of David. And then as you get down through here, <clears throat> In verse 18, it says, Now the birth of Jesus Christ was as follows. After his mother Mary was betrothed to Joseph, Mary was, uh, before they came together, she was found to be with child of the Holy Spirit. So he's talking about a virgin birth, down in verse 23. Again, Matthew's writing to a Jewish audience who had the scriptures and understood the scriptures. Behold, and he's quoting here from Isaiah chapter 7, verse 14, written about 700 B.C., seven centuries earlier. Behold, a virgin shall be with child and bear a son, and they shall call his name Emmanuel, meaning God with us. This was a prophecy given to Isaiah 700 years earlier. And what Matthew is saying, this is the fulfillment the birth of Jesus Christ is the fulfillment of that prophecy. In verse 6 of chapter uh, <clears throat> 2, Matthew quotes uh, another prophecy from Micah chapter 5 and verse 2, written about 600 B.C. It says, But you, Bethlehem, in the land of Judea, are not the least among the rulers of Judah, for out of you shall come a ruler, a ruler who will shepherd my people Israel. You're predicting the, the site of Jesus' birth, which was in Bethlehem. Again, there's no other book on the face of the earth that makes prophecies like this. I won't go through other prophecies that uh, Matthew refers to, but Matthew is pointing to a Jewish audience. You've got the scriptures. You've got these prophecies. Here is the individual who was born to fulfill these prophecies. And he fulfilled them just as the Bible said would take place. Let's go to Mark chapter 1. <clears throat> now Mark is writing to a Gentile audience, largely. And he's much more open with his use of terms. Mark chapter 1, verse 1. This is the beginning of the gospel of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. That's what the Bible claims for Jesus Christ, as being the Son of God. In Luke chapter 1, Luke uses the same phraseology. Beginning in verse 26, this description of an angel that appears to Mary and describes to her what is going to happen. Beginning in verse 26, Now in the sixth month of the angel Gabriel was sent by God to the city of Galilee named Nazareth to a virgin, betrothed to a man whose name was Joseph, of the house of David. 
Again, the prophecies in the Old Testament talking about a Messiah would come from the house of David, and the virgin's name was Mary. Verse 31, And behold, you will conceive in your womb and bring forth a son, and he shall be called, and his and shall call his name Jesus. Again, this comes from a Hebrew word that means Joshua, or the, the Lord will deliver, or God will deliver. He will be great and will be called the Son of the Highest. And the Lord God will give him the throne of his father David. Down in verse 35, the angel answered and said to her, The Holy Spirit will come upon you, and the power of the Highest will overshadow you. Therefore also as the Holy One who is to be born will be called the Son of God. Now, the Bible is very clear who Jesus Christ is, who he was. He was the Son of God. Now, some critics will say, well, Jesus never claimed to be the Son of God, so he didn't even know who he was. This is, this is silly. If you turn to uh, Mark chapter 14, where Mark describes Jesus coming before the Sanhedrin, the night before he was to be crucified. <clears throat> Various people were accusing him. Verse 58, let's start there. It says, We heard him say, I will destroy this temple that is made without hands within three days. I will build up another one without hands. But not even then did their testimony agree. And the high priest stood up in the midst and asked Jesus, Do you answer nothing? What is it that these men testify against you? But he kept silent and answered nothing. Again, the high priest asked him, saying to him, Are you the Christ? Again, this word Christ is a title. It comes from the Greek word Christos, which means the Messiah, the anointed one. So he's basically being asked, Are you the Christ, the Messiah, the one that was prophesied that would come? Now, critics will say Jesus never said he was the Son of God. But notice what his answer was. He said, I am. I am the Messiah. I am the Son of the Highest. And you will see the Son of Man sitting at the right hand of the power and coming with the clouds of heaven. And then the high priest tore his clothes. What further need do we have of any witnesses? You know, you've seen what he said. Uh, you know, Go for him. No, Jesus was basically saying, yeah, I am the Son of God. While critics may say he said he never said it, the scriptures indicate that he did. How do we know he was the Son of God? Well, the Bible says. Well, there's more to it than that. Notice what Paul said in uh, Romans chapter 1, verse 4. We'll look at what Paul said, and then we'll go back and look at where Paul was coming from. It's not a matter just it's not just a matter of the fact that the gospels say that he was the Son of God. In Romans chapter one, verse four, let's just start with verse one. Paul, a servant or a slave of Jesus Christ, called to be an apostle and separated to the gospel of God, which he promised before through his prophets in the Holy Scriptures concerning his son. Jesus Christ, our Lord, who was born of the seed of David, just like the Old Testament scripture said he would, and declared to be the Son of God with power. 
according to the spirit of holiness by the resurrection from the dead. So it was really the miracles that Jesus Christ did, the resurrection from the dead, that demonstrated that he was not just a human being, that he was the Son of God. He came in power. You know, there was a group of scholars got together. I guess they started meeting about 1985 or 1986 called the Jesus Seminar. And these people were educated men. They got together and their, their goal was we will decide what statements in the New Testament were authentic and what statements are not authentic. And they had some different colored marbles that they threw in a glass jar. And uh, they throw a marble in, I think it was red, if they felt that the statement was true, and a black one if they felt it was false. And they came to the remarkable conclusion that 80% of what we read in the New Testament about Jesus was wrong. What was their criteria? Well, if there are miracles involved, then we can't believe it because miracles don't happen. But these people have planted seeds in the media that the Bible's not true. You can't trust what is there. Um, it is the miracles of Jesus Christ and the resurrection that basically set this man, God, apart from all other human beings. Notice the signs. Let's start in, in Matthew 16 very quickly. Jesus began telling his disciples, and they recorded these things, of how we would know, how people in future generations would know that Jesus Christ was the Son of God. Three times in Matthew, three times in Mark, and several times in Luke, these same things are recorded. In Matthew 16, verse 21, Jesus was telling his disciples, from that time Jesus began to show his disciples that he must go to Jerusalem and suffer many things from the elders and the chief priests and be killed and be raised again on the third day. Now this quote from Josephus that some people doubt is uh, totally true mentions that Christ appeared after three days. Or some people think he appeared after three days. But Josephus is acknowledging basically what Christ was saying. He would be raised again the third day. Matthew 17, verse 23. Again, three seems to be important in God's way of figuring things. So Christ said three times. It's recorded three times in the book of Matthew. Verse 22 and 23. Now, while they were staying in Galilee, Jesus said to them, The Son of Man is about to be betrayed into the hands of men, and they will kill him. And the third day he will be raised up. And they were exceedingly sorrowful. So here's Christ predicting again, they're going to kill me when we go to Jerusalem, but after three days I will be resurrected. Matthew 20, verse 17. <clears throat> it says, Then Jesus, going up to Jerusalem, took the twelve disciples aside along the road. He said, Behold, we are going up to Jerusalem, and the Son of Man will be betrayed to the chief priests and to the scribes, and they will condemn him to death and deliver him to the Gentiles to mock and to scourge and to crucify. And the third day he will rise again from the dead. So this is what we read in the scriptures. I'm not going to go through Mark, but there are three references there. The same thing in Luke, several references to the same thing. What does this all add up to? Go to uh, Acts chapter 1. Now keep in mind, the book of Acts is written by Luke. 
he appears to be an, an educated individual because much of what he records in the book of Acts uh, is archaeologically and historically correct. Uh, he knew what he was talking about. But if you read the introduction to the book of Acts, he says in verse 1, The former account I made, O Theophilus, of all that Jesus began to do and teach until the day in which he was taken up, after he, through the Holy Spirit, had, command, had given commandments to his apostles he had chosen, to whom he also presented himself alive after his suffering by many infallible proofs or unmistakable proofs. He talked about being resurrected three days after he was crucified. That's what happened. That's what the Bible records, and that's what even secular history suggests. Unmistakable proofs being seen by them during 40 days and speaking of those things pertaining to the kingdom of God. Notice another scripture back in... Uh, Second Peter... Now, Peter is writing somewhat later, but the point that Peter is making is exactly the same point that Luke was making. Second Peter chapter 1, verse 16. Peter said, We did not follow cunningly devised fables. We didn't make up stories when we made known to you the power and the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ but were eyewitnesses of his majesty. We saw what happened. We saw him die. We saw him put to death. We saw him when he was resurrected. We spent 40 days with him. Now keep in mind, Peter and Luke and Paul died for their beliefs. You don't die for fables. Well, we really didn't mean that. <laughs> we just kind of made it up because we had a good thing going here. No, they died along with other people for what they believed and what they saw. And yet you've got critics today saying, well, it's, you know, Jesus maybe never even existed. You know, and How do we know these things? The Bible's not really true. I wonder if these people would die for their beliefs. But the apostles did. They did. They died for what they believed. In Acts chapter 1, we see a little bit more about Jesus Christ. Let's go back there. <clears throat> because these are prophecies about what is going to happen and what this individual, Jesus Christ, is going to do in the future. In Acts chapter 1, verse 9, it says, Now when he had spoken these things, while they watched, he, Jesus Christ, was taken up, and a cloud received him out of their sight. You know, somebody just ascending out of the parking lot back here goes up, and you see a cloud blow across, and he disappears. They had to blow their minds. What is happening here? And while they looked steadfastly towards heaven as he went up, behold, two men stood by them in white apparel, who also said, Men of Galilee, why do you stand gazing up into heaven? This same Jesus who was taken up from you into heaven 
will so come in like manner as you saw him go into heaven. He's going to come back. He's going to be visible. That's what the angels told him. Now turn back to Matthew 24. The angels told these men the same thing that Jesus had told them earlier. Prophecies of what is going to come to pass in the future. Matthew 24, beginning in verse 29. It says, Immediately after, this is Jesus talking, Immediately after the tribulation of those days, the sun will be darkened and the moon will not give its light, and the stars will fall from heaven, and the powers of the heavens will be shaken. Then the sign of the Son of Man will appear in heaven. Then all the tribes of the earth will mourn, and they will see the Son of Man coming in the clouds of heaven with power and great glory. And he will send his angels with the sound of a great, uh, a great sound of a trumpet, and they will gather together his elect from the winds, from the four winds, from one end of the heaven to the other. In verse 29 it says this is going to happen immediately after the tribulation. Yet there are some people that teach today that this is going to happen before the tribulation. People will be raptured off to heaven or this or that or the other thing. And there's um, some people today preaching that uh, Christ appeared to them secretly within the last 10 years and told them to start a new church. But the Bible doesn't say those things. But some of our people have been drawn into these other ideas. And yet the Bible is very clear. It says immediately after the tribulation, Jesus Christ is going to come in the heavens and gather his people together. And then Zacharias says his feet are going to stand on the Mount of Olives. He's going to set up a government in Jerusalem. The Bible is really pretty clear about these things. But there's all kinds of ideas about Jesus Christ, just as there are ideas about a number of things. But the point is I wanted to make here, Jesus said... You know, I'm going to, or did we even finish that? Uh, <clears throat> right, you will see him coming. And then in Acts it says, as you saw him go, you will see him coming back. These miracles, these supernatural uh, occurrences are some of the very things that demonstrate that Jesus Christ was the Son of God. Human beings don't do this. And people don't die for a person who told them a bunch of stories. You know, these things are real. And people are being misled today by critics who think they know so much. And yet they don't understand what they're talking about. Another interesting observation to make, I think, at this point. If you go to Matthew chapter 28. <clears throat> There has been discussion over the centuries, last several anyways, and in recent years that you know, Jesus Christ couldn't have been crucified and then be resurrected because things like that just don't happen. It's not natural. So people reject the idea, and they come up with the idea, well, maybe the disciples stole his body. And yet when you read the scriptures, it's incredible what's there that people ignore today that begin to think those ways. Matthew 28. Talking about what happened after Jesus Christ arose. In verse 11 of Matthew 28, it says, Now while they were going 
Behold, some of the guard came into the city and reported to the chief priests all the things that had happened. This was after Christ had arisen. And when they had assembled with the elders and taken counsel, they gave a large sum of money to the soldiers, saying, Tell them, tell the people, his disciples came at night and stole him away while, they, while we slept. And if this comes to the governor's ears, we will appease him and make you secure. So they took the money and did as they were instructed, and this saying is commonly reported among the Jews today. And yet educated scholars today have jumped on the bandwagon and said that the disciples really stole his body, so therefore he was a human being and he couldn't have been resurrected. You think, <laughs> don't they read the scriptures? Don't they believe what is there? You know, one of the reasons for undermining the belief in the resurrection is that this was the major sign that Jesus Christ gave in the scriptures to demonstrate that he was the son of God. And if we throw away these things and discount these things, we're simply not going to understand the scriptures. Let's go to the next section. What did Jesus Christ teach? <clears throat> what did Jesus Christ teach? Now, I realize I'm preaching to the choir. That uh, most of you know what Jesus Christ preached. But, you know, for people that don't understand God, that don't believe in God, that have heard Jesus Christ may not even have existed, they're not going to understand what's in the Bible. This study is done by George Barna and others other individuals basically come to the conclusion that most Americans are biblically illiterate. They don't understand what is in the scriptures. They don't understand. So we need to understand. A couple of quick examples. In Acts chapter 8, Acts chapter 8, Philip went down to Samaria, and as he was... Uh, heading towards Ethiopia. He talks with this Ethiopian um, individual who had come up to Jerusalem to worship. begins explaining the Bible to this man. Verse 35, it says, Philip then opened his mouth. The man was reading out of the book of Isaiah, talking about a sheep going to the slaughter. And he says, you know, what, what does this mean? Verse 35, Philip opened his mouth, began at this scripture, again, in the Old Testament, and preached Jesus to him. So this is a prophecy about Jesus Christ who would come and be this lamb uh, that would be taken to the slaughter, who's going to give his life for all mankind. They came to some water, and the, and the uh, eunuch says, you know, here's water, why can't I be baptized? And Philip said, if you believe with all your heart, you may be baptized. He said, I believe that Jesus Christ is the Son of God. And he was baptized. And many people will assume, well, I just believe in Jesus so I can be baptized. But he had been going up to Jerusalem. He had been keeping probably the Sabbath and the feast up there. He would have understood a number of things. There is more to becoming a Christian than just believing in Jesus Christ. I turn to another interesting scripture where Paul, or excuse me, James is talking about the difference between faith and works. And James makes a rather interesting statement. 
You can begin reading in verse 14 down through about verse 19 or so. He says in verse 14, What does it profit, my brethren, if someone says he has faith but does not have works? Can faith save him? In other words, we've got to have more than just believing in God. If a brother or sister is naked and destitute of daily food and one says to him, Depart in peace, you know, just go love the Lord. Everything will be fine. Uh, <clears throat> and if you do not give him the things that are needed, uh, what does it profit? Thus also faith by itself, if it does not have works, is dead. But someone will say, you have faith and I have works, as Mr. has mentioned in the sermonette. Uh, our church feeds the flock, but your church preaches the gospel. Uh, you know, we've got a job to do. There's got to be faith and works. But notice what Paul, James says here in verse 19. He said, you believe there is one God? That's fine. Even the demons believe there's one God. And we could add something else here. Is you believe in Jesus Christ? Well, the, the, the demons believe that Jesus is the Christ. They know that. See, there's more that we have to do other than believe. That's the point that, that uh, James was making. In John 3.16, another scripture that is utilized today with this same idea behind it. And I grew up believing these things. <clears throat> it says, For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten Son, that whosoever believes in him should not perish but have everlasting life. But again, there are things we need to do besides believe in God and believe in Jesus Christ if we're going to follow the teachings of Jesus Christ. You know, what is it that he taught? Let's look quickly at some of these things. Mark chapter 1. Mark describes the very beginning of the gospel of Jesus Christ. Verse 14. says, Now after John was put in prison, Jesus came into Galilee preaching the gospel of the kingdom of God. He's not saying here, just give me your heart and everything will be fine. He was preaching the gospel of the kingdom of God, saying the time is fulfilled, the kingdom of God is at hand. Repent. Not just believe in me, but repent. Change your life. Turn around. Go in a different direction. Repent of what? Well, you repent of sin. First John 3, 4 says sin is a transgression of the law. Now, if the law has been done away with, how do you transgress a law? See, the law was never done away with. We break the laws of God, we sin. We've got to be forgiven of that sin by accepting Jesus Christ as our Savior. But he says repent and believe the gospel. Let me just give you a couple of scriptures, and you do the checking up on this. Go back to Daniel chapter 2. When it talks about this stone without hands is going to come and crush the kingdoms of this earth. It's talking about Jesus Christ. He's going to do that in the days of ten kings, when ten leaders come together, a revival of the Roman Empire at the end of the age. It says Jesus Christ is going to come and take over at that point in time. Daniel chapter 2, towards the end of the chapter. In Daniel chapter 7, verse 27, it says, the kingdom is going to be given to the saints. See, this theme runs through the Old Testament, runs into the New Testament. 
that Christ is going to come back, set up a kingdom on this earth. Isaiah 9, verses 6 and 7 says, The government is going to be upon his shoulders. And he, with the saints, are going to change things and show people that marriage is between a man and a woman, not just between any two people. And certain behaviors are an abomination to God regardless of what anybody thinks. See, this is part of the restoration of all things that is going to take place that we read about in Acts chapter 3, verses 19 through about 21. In Isaiah chapter 2, it says, The law will go forth from Jerusalem. The laws of God are going to go forth from Jerusalem that says homosexuality is evil. Now, the people aren't evil, but when you're drawn into a lifestyle, how to be gay 101, you're going to be deceived. And you're going to get involved with something that God said is terrible, never intended to be that way, that marriage is special. It's not just between any two people or any two things or however you want to define it. Uh, there is going to be a restoration of all things. And you have been called to work with Jesus Christ under him, to be guided and directed by him. But we're not going to be able to, you know, go forth into all the world with the laws of God unless we understand those laws of God. Unless we believe deeply, as Peter said, we didn't follow cunningly devised fables. When we made known these things to you, we were eyewitnesses. We were there. We listened to what Jesus Christ was preaching and saying. We saw what he did. He was the Son of God. Notice quickly in Matthew chapter 16. You know, Jesus worked with these 12 disciples who became the 12 apostles, and he also worked with others to show them who he was. He didn't leave them in any doubts. Matthew chapter 16, beginning in verse 13. Here Jesus was teaching his disciples as he worked with them. When Jesus came into the region of Caesarea Philippi, he asked his disciples, Who do men say that I, the Son of Man, am? Who do people think I am? And people today, well, he's just an ordinary person. He was misguided. He thought he was the Messiah. He thought he was the Son of God. Jesus said, who do people say that I am? So they said, some say you're John the Baptist, some say you're Elijah, others Jeremiah or one of the prophets. He said to them, but who do you say that I am? And Simon Peter answered and said, you are the Christ, the Messiah, the one who has prophesied to come, the son of the living God. Peter did not think that Jesus Christ was an ordinary human being. He said, you're the Son of God. The Son of God. You are the Christ, the Messiah, the one who was prophesied to come as the Savior of mankind. Not just your buddy, not just your friend, but as the Savior of mankind. It's pretty powerful stuff. Jesus told his disciples to repent. Now, we could go through other scriptures, Matthew 19, verse 16, where Jesus was telling his disciples 
that you're going to reign over the 12 tribes of Israel. Revelation 1, verses 5 and 6. Revelation 5, verse 10, where John is saying you're going to reign as kings and priests on this earth. You're under Jesus Christ. Leaders, guides, teachers that point the way. That's why we need to understand what it is that we're all about, why we're here, and what God's way of life is all about. In Acts chapter 2, Luke picks up on this thought of repentance and what is involved. Christ came preaching about a coming kingdom of God, and then he outlined a way that we can enter the kingdom of God. That's what it's all about. He pointed the way. This is what you need to do if you want to be there. In Acts chapter 2, Peter was preaching on the day of Pentecost, uh, explaining the role of Jesus Christ. Start in verse 36. Therefore, let all the house of Israel know assuredly that God has made this Jesus, whom you've crucified, both Lord and Christ. Now, when they heard this, they were cut to the heart, said to Peter and the rest of the apostles, what do we do? In other words, we want to be part of this, but what do we have to do? Jesus or Peter said, repent. He didn't say, just give your heart to the Lord, reach out and touch your radio or whatever it is that some people are being told to do today. He said, repent, change your life. Begin to live in harmony with the the teachings of Jesus Christ and the laws of God. Let every one of you be baptized where you make a commitment. Now, he's talking to adults. He's not talking to children. People that were old enough to know what it meant to repent and old enough to know what it meant to make a commitment to live a certain way. Be baptized in the name of Jesus Christ for the remission, for the forgiveness of your sins, and you shall receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. So we're told that we receive the gift of the Holy Spirit if we repent. In Acts 5.32, we're told that God gives his spirit to those who obey him, that begin to live by the laws of God and follow the instructions of Jesus Christ. These were all part of the teachings of Jesus Christ. John 14. I think there are a lot of sincere people today that love the Lord. And they try to do what's right. But this again was the teaching of Jesus Christ. John 14, 15 said, if you love me, keep my commandments. If you love me, keep my commandments. And some people say, well, there's only two. You just have to love God and love your neighbor. But those two are summary commandments. You love God by not taking his name in vain, not having other gods before you, You by keeping the Sabbath. You love your neighbor by not killing, lying, stealing, coveting, and doing those things. But Jesus' definition was, if you love me, keep my commandments. In Matthew 4, he says, follow me, follow in my footsteps. You follow my teachings. Paul mentions 1 Corinthians 11, 1. 1 Corinthians 11, 1, follow me as I follow Jesus Christ. You know, Paul kept the Sabbath, kept the holy days, believed in you know, exercising the fruits of God's spirit. If we look quickly at uh, Matthew 5, we've 
pick up again the teachings of Jesus Christ having to do with personal character. And Jesus was preaching this at the very beginning of his ministry. So seeing the multitudes, beginning in verse 1 of Matthew 5, went up into the mountain. When he was seated, his disciples came to him and began teaching them, Blessed are the poor in spirit. They're humble. They're teachable. Not arguing for their own way. For theirs is the kingdom of God. These are the people that are going to be in the kingdom of God. Blessed are those who mourn, who care for other people. They're empathetic. They can put themselves in other people's shoes. Blessed are those that mourn, they will be comforted. Blessed are the meek, again, teachable and patient. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness. Psalm 119, verse 172 says, All thy commandments are righteousness. Your Jesus was righteous. We should strive to be righteous. Blessed are the merciful, for they will obtain mercy. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. Blessed are the peacemakers. Blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake. And many people have been persecuted down through history for trying to follow the laws of God and follow the teachings of Jesus Christ. And it appears that people in the years just ahead are going to be persecuted for following the teachings of Jesus Christ. I've got a book at home entitled The Criminalization of Christianity. The criminalization of Christianity. If you insist in the years ahead following the teachings of Jesus Christ and the Bible, we're probably going to go to jail. If we speak out against homosexuality, if you try and read your Bible in public for putting the Ten Commandments on the laws of public buildings in America, where on our coins say, In God we trust you wonder what on earth is happening in this country. What is happening in our nation? What is happening in the Western world where things are being turned upside down totally from what it has been for centuries? These are the teachings of Jesus Christ. Galatians chapter 5 talks about the fruits of the Spirit. You're familiar with those. Well, let's look at them quickly. It's interesting to look at these fruits and then notice what Paul actually wrote in some of his epistles. It says, The fruit of the Spirit, verse 22, is love, outgoing concern, joy, thankful for understanding the truth, thankful for the blessings that we have. And yet sometimes we begin to complain. How are things going? Terrible. How's your week? Bad. <laughs> you know, we've got to be positive. Kidding with Mr. Partying over the <laughs> over the years. I walk in and said, We've got a lot of problems today. So Mr. Partying, we have challenges today. <laughs> you know, we kid back and forth. They're challenging problems, but that way. But joy, peace. You're striving to make peace, long suffering, being patient. These are all qualities of the Spirit of God. But notice some other fruits of the Spirit that Paul talks about in 2 Timothy chapter 1. See, Paul lists certain qualities of the Spirit in Galatians chapter 5, but in 2 Timothy chapter 1, he tells Timothy, I remind you, verse 6 and 7, 
to stir up the gift of God, the spirit of God which is in you through the laying on of my hands. God has not given us a spirit of fear. Now, if you have a lot of doubts and fears, maybe you need to nourish God's spirit, begin to exercise God's spirit. God says all things work to the good for those that are called according to his purpose. He also talks about in 1 Corinthians 10 that he will make a way of escape if you have problems that you're facing. You be persistent. You trust God. Follow his laws and instructions. God has not given us a spirit of fear, but of power. And the word is confidence, conviction. You know where you're going. You know that Jesus Christ existed, that he lives today, that his laws work. And you've got a burning sense of confidence that way. And of love an unselfish, outgoing concern, and of a sound mind, a discerning mind. And when someone comes up and says, you know, I just don't know where God's church is today. There's so many. They're not really exercising discernment. You know, a discerning mind being led by God's spirit should be able to see the fruits of where God is working. It's not a big mystery to someone who's being led by the spirit of God. So Paul talks about these three other qualities here, love, uh, conviction, and of a sound, discerning mind. Discernment, I believe, is going to be increasingly important in the years just ahead. Because as we read in Matthew 24, Jesus said, many will come in my name and deceive many. And we have got to be able to discern where the truth is and discern where it is not. He says, many will come in my name. They'll be using my name. They'll be talking about Jesus. They'll be talking about God. But he said, they'll deceive people. And we've got to have our eyes open. We've got to be led by God's spirit. Let's look at another scripture in uh, 2 Corinthians 11. Now, this is Paul writing who had God's spirit, who acted in love. But in chapter 11, 2 Corinthians 3, he says, I fear lest somehow as the serpent deceived Eve by his craftiness, so your minds may be corrupted from the simplicity that is in Christ. He came, he lived, he died, he was crucified, he was resurrected. That's what the Bible says, and that's what history records. And as some are saying today, well, he was just an ordinary human being. But history doesn't validate that. History says something very different. He came working miracles. He was resurrected. He ascended into heaven. People saw him, and he's going to come back. That's not an ordinary human being. Your minds may be corrupted from the simplicity that is in Christ. For if he who comes preaches another Jesus. You know, most of the pictures of Jesus show him with long hair. And yet Paul says in 1 Corinthians, it's a shame for a man to have long hair. Something's wrong with this picture. Something's wrong with that picture. Jesus wouldn't be doing things that the Bible says is, is wrong. They'll be preaching another Jesus who have not, we've not preached, have a different spirit, and have a different gospel. 
be going to heaven, sitting on a cloud, things like that. Jesus said, I'm coming back. My feet are going to stand on this earth, on the Mount of Olives, and we're going to reign from Jerusalem. And the laws of God will go forth around the whole earth. It's a very different gospel from what some preach today. But if you keep on reading what Paul says, let's go to uh, verse 12 and 13. He says, But what I do, I will also continue to do, that I may cut off the opportunity from those who desire an opportunity to be regarded just as we are in the things which they boast. Uh, For such are false apostles, deceitful workers, transforming themselves into apostles. Uh, So Paul is very sharp here. And Paul loved people. He loved the truth. He loved the congregation. But he said, I fear what is happening to you. Second Thessalonians 2, let's look at that quickly. <clears throat> you know, we need to understand history whenever we're reading the Scriptures These atheists that are writing today, ridiculing the Bible, saying that Jesus Christ may never have existed, these are not new ideas. These ideas have been circulating for several centuries in intellectual circles. You could probably go back to the first century, second century, where other critics were saying pretty much the same thing. But talking about a great apostasy coming at the end of the age, let's go down to verse 7. It says, and Paul is writing... Around 60, 65 A.D. He says, The mystery of lawlessness is already at work. Paul says in his time, these things were already going on. Only he who now restrains will do so. He says, Then the lawless one will be revealed. He's talking now at the end of the age, whom the Lord will consume with the breath of his mouth and destroy with the brightness of his coming. So this lawless one linked with this mystery of lawlessness that was already operating in Paul's day. The coming of the lawless one, according to the working of Satan, with all power and signs and wonders, and with all unrighteousness, or all unrighteous deception among those who perish, because they did not receive a love of the truth, that they may be saved. And for this reason, God will send them strong delusion. Paul is talking about a lawless one that's going to appear at the end of the age that is linked with a mystery of lawlessness that was operating in Paul's time. What's he talking about? I would suggest you read the history of the Catholic Church. That changed the Sabbath to Sunday, that instituted Easter, that instituted Christmas, that changed one of the commandments, that instituted a lot of things down through the centuries, that persecuted people that believed in keeping the Sabbath, persecuted people that believed in keeping the holy days. That system was operating. Sunday keeping began in and around Rome about 100 A.D. These other things began in and around Rome and began spreading out. The Pope just this past week says we need an international agency, some sort of international government that will begin to control things. 
the EU has on its books, if you don't keep the Sabbath, things will happen. But that's not being instituted yet. Wait till some people get into power and start instituting these things. Says you will do this. And if we have a German pope at that time, it will be you will do that. <laughs> and you will like it. <laughs> you know, things are happening. As this one person I talked to on the phone said, very unique things are happening. You bet they're unique. These things have been prophesied for thousands of years. We're seeing it coming together. And yet many people in the world are oblivious to this. Now, some people are looking for the return of Jesus Christ. But it's going to surprise most people. It's going to surprise most people. I'm going to give you an assignment since we don't have time to go through the rest of this. My wife said, you always spend too much time on your introductions <laughs> and not enough time on the other things. Dr. Meredith wrote an article some time ago entitled, Who Was the God of the Old Testament? Who was the God of the Old Testament? And when you read through Bible handbooks, they talk about a pre-incarnate Christ, who he was before he became Jesus Christ on this earth. And they usually dance around it and don't say much about it. And yet if you go through the book of John, some people say John is, is very different. Well, it is very different. You know, Matthew, Mark, and Luke are kind of a story of Jesus Christ, how he was born, how he developed, what his ministry was. In the book of John, John gets into theology. And Christ's prayer in John 17, verses 1 through 5, he's praying with his disciples the night before he was crucified. He says, Father, restore to me the glory that I had with you before I came to this earth. What was that glory? How do you restore something? Where was he? What was he doing? John chapter 1, it says, The Word was in the beginning with God, and the Word was God. And the Word created all things. Jesus Christ was that individual. You know, Paul mentions, 1 Corinthians 10, 4, that the rock that followed them in the wilderness was Christ. And we sang a song at the very beginning of the service of Psalm 9 about the rock of our salvation. Psalms. Paul says that rock was Christ. You know, the God that spoke to Moses was the one who became Jesus Christ. The one that gave the Ten Commandments on Sinai was the one who became Jesus Christ. When he said, keep my commandments... In the New Testament, was the one who gave those commandments in the Old Testament. It's a very interesting study. I'd encourage you to read the article that Dr. Meredith wrote because that begins to explain a lot of things. It begins to explain a lot of things. Brethren, we are living in an age when more and more people are doubting their beliefs. When you've got over 60% of the teenagers in Britain no longer believe in God. I remember talking with uh, Mr. Storier, our minister up in Scotland. He said, when I was a kid, all the kids were in Sunday school. He said, now hardly any go.
to Sunday school. See, things are happening in our society. We talk about being a Christian nation, living in a Judeo-Christian Western world. Things are changing. As this man I was talking to recently said, unique things, sobering things, prophetically significant things are happening. We have got to stay awake. We've got to realize people are knocking what you believe, and yet our calling is to work with Jesus Christ, prepare to reign with him, and prepare to say, this is the way. These things are wrong. These people are being misled. They don't understand the scriptures. But this is the way. Walk you in it. Jesus Christ lived. Jesus Christ was one of the most significant persons to ever walk this earth. His teachings basically guided the development to a degree of Western civilization. And now all this stuff is being ridiculed by really a small group of people. But if you keep saying something frequently enough, many other people believe it. Brethren, we are told in the Bible, 1 Thessalonians 5.21, to prove all things and to hold fast to those things that are right and true. Don't be caught in an undertow that will pull you under, spiritually speaking. Prove what is right. Hang on to what is true. Prepare to reign with Jesus Christ. Develop his mind. Develop his perspective so that God can use you to literally turn this world right side up and restore all things with Jesus Christ.